We haven't had a word of devotion in a little while. So we're going to start off with a little bit of devotion, and this will hopefully kind of reorient us to St. Peter's writings, the Apostle Peter, of his writings to the church. And see, we were talking about how precious this salvation is and how precious we are to have a father like him, a father who takes care of us, and a father who has revealed himself in his word. So this morning, let's turn to Isaiah 65. Yes, that's not a slip of the tongue. Isaiah. <laughs> and verse 16. And I'm going to read, read this and then read a little something Steve Lawson says about truth. We need to reorient our thinking constantly because we are in a world that despises the truth. All right, Isaiah 65, 16 says, So that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgiven and are hidden from my eyes. Two times in this uh, verse, in this one verse, God is called the God of truth. Now, truth is precious. You don't come across much truth anymore, but truth is precious. And Steve Lawson from Ligonier Ministries makes this statement. What is the nature of truth? In a word, truth means reality. It is the way anything truly is. Truth is not how things may appear to be. It is not what the majority of people conjecture, conjecture truth to be. It is not even what we may want something to be. Truth is whatever God says is reality. Truth is whatever conforms to the mind and character of God. And he goes on a little bit later. He says the written word of God is not to be subjectively understood by the personal whims of the individual. It's not subjective. It does not mean one thing to one person and something else to another person. Rather, the truth has made has been made known with black and white words that can be parsed and accurately defined. It is expressed in actual words that can be studied and interpreted. It is to be rationally understood. Whatever God says is absolutely true, whether it coincides with a person's preconceived notions or not. So truth is very objective. It is whatever God declares it to be. And then finally, let's turn over to Second uh, Timothy. Chapter 2. God is writing to Timothy in this letter. <clears throat> and in 2 Timothy 2, verse 15... Paul tells him, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, this is a, in my opinion, this is a high privilege that right before 
you on your table right in front of you. You're holding truth. You're holding absolute truth. God says this is true. So guess what? It is true. For two and a half millennia, unbelieving philosophers have tried to figure out what the Bible plainly tells us. And not a one of them, not one pagan philosopher has ever arrived at the truth. And you have it there right before your eyes there on the table in front of you. So I'm just trying to remind you what a blessing it is that we have this. And to keep that in mind as we study today. Anybody have anything to add to that? Okay. Then guess where we're going to turn? Second, First Peter, brother. <laughs> Okay, last, last week we uh, got verses thir- uh, 12 and 13. And in 13, we have the word therefore. Uh, at least it's, it's the first word in chapter, verse 13 in the Greek is therefore. <clears throat> okay, so Peter has given them a very brief but filled with uh, various topics uh, of uh, doctrine. And now he's saying, in, in light of this, these teachings, this systematic theology that I have just given you, therefore, let's do these things. Because remember, what we believe has an effect on how we live. You, you, belief and action are two sides of the same coin. You need them both. They're not, they're, they could be distinct to a certain degree, but they're never separated. You cannot separate truth from doctrine. And so last week we, uh, got to the, we were, we looked at verse 13. It says, therefore prepare your minds for action. We are supposed to be ready. We are supposed to think, to be ready for action. And uh, we're to use our minds, and it's hard work. We are under persecution. We were, we're not under persecution to the extent they were. They were under severe persecution, and Peter says, therefore, you're going to have to prepare your mind for action. You're going to have to do some hard work, because there's certain things that you need to do. And then finally we ended up saying, notice that God commands hope. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As Christians, we have hope because we have God's word, we have God's promises, and we know that even though we undergo terrible things here because of persecuting unbelievers that we have hope because God is in control and he does care for us. So we're basically through verse 13. Anybody have anything, any questions or anything on that?
Okay, Alanda, I'm going to ask you to read for us 14 through 21. <clears throat> and then also, before you start, uh, Donna, if you'll look up for us Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And then on down the road, uh, Leviticus 19, 1 through 2. And then Romans 3, 18. Okay. All right, this is what we'll be going through today, these verses here that Alanda's going to read for us. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also, uh, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, as for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Okay, thank you. In verse 14, the first one that was read to us, we see how important obedience is. He calls them as obedient children. And notice he doesn't use the word disobedient, but he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So if you're not obedient, you're ignorant. According to what Peter is writing here. So one either obeys being conformed to the conduct of Christ or one is ignorant. And also Peter is telling them that they are no longer to lead a feeling-oriented life. He says, uh, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. They used to live by feeling. Whatever feels good, do it. Whatever we want to, whatever we like, that's what we're going to believe. So it was a feeling-oriented life, a passion-oriented life, a fleshly-oriented life. <clears throat> that would be the passions of their former ignorance. But they are now to lead a commandment-oriented life. Now they're going to be obedient children. At, before they conformed to their passions of their ignorance. But now they are told that now you need to be obedient children. And let's have Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 read. And you have he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Okay, that's, that's, that's enough. Okay. <clears throat> I'm 
actually it's what I wanted you to see in that is that Paul calls them in their um, natural state when they were dead in their trespasses and sins they called, he called them children of disobedience that's what everyone is who is outside of Christ he is a child of disobedience but Peter tells them here that they are children of obedience um, literally it's children of obedience the ESV says obedient children but it's children of obedience So now they are no longer ignorant, but they're obedient. They no longer live according to the passions of their flesh. Now they lead a commandment-oriented life. Now, this is one thing that I know I have to stop a lot of times and think about. How do I shape my life? Do I get up in the morning and think about, okay... Am I going to do what God tells me to do in His commandments? Or am I going to do what I would naturally want to do according to the passions of my flesh? So, this might be, you see these What Would Jesus Do stickers everywhere. And the idea would be that Jesus would every time, in every situation, He would lead a commandment. He would live according to God's commandments. He would not live according to the passions of his flesh. So, in the decisions we make, we need to make based on what God has commanded us to do so that we will be children of obedience and not children of disobedience. A big difference in the way the non-Christian lives and the way that the true Christian lives, the obedient Christian. There's no room in here for carnal Christians. All right, anybody have anything to add to that? Bill? Yeah. I just remember when that uh, what would Jesus do thing was all the rage, somebody pointed out that, uh, and this may be a distinction without a difference, I don't know, but I thought it was an important one. That the, the question we should have is what would he have me to do? There are certain unique things that he did that we can't and don't do. So the bigger question is, what does he want me, us, to do? And of course, that's given to us in his word. Right. What would Jesus have me to do? Look in the Bible and you will know. All right. And then in verse 15, we pick up there. <coughs> Peter says, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Okay. Um, Romans 7.12 says that the law is holy and just and good. Romans 7 also says that the law is spiritual. So don't ever listen to any of this hogwash about, I don't have to obey God's command. I'm a spiritual Christian. By spiritual, they probably mean non-physical. But the law is spiritual. The law is holy. And God is holy. And it reflects God's character. The law is holy 
and just and good? God is holy and just and good. The commandments of God are not um, capricious. They are patterned after his own character. God isn't conformed to the law, but the law is perfectly conformed to the character of God. And that's why the law can never change. God never changes. And His law can never change. His law in the Old Testament is the same as it is in the New Testament. So God expects us to reflect His holy character in our conduct. So the way we conduct ourselves, we are supposed to be reflecting God's holy character. We can't pick and choose what we want to do. It says, God is, you shall be holy for I am holy. And verse 15 he says, you are to be holy in all of your conduct. All of your conduct. Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now the primary meaning of holiness is to be separate. When something is made holy to God, it is separated to God. It's no longer uh, common, but separated, set apart for holy use. Made useful to God. And so we are set apart from the world. We are called out from the world. God effectually calls out the Christians from the world. You have been effectually called out from the world to live a holy and a godly life. And the American Standard Version, and probably the King James too, says, be holy in your manner of life. The primary meaning uh, is that here, and this is in your notes, the word for conduct indicates public conduct. We are to behave publicly our whole manner of life in public the way we carry on business the way we act in front of other people in other words all of our manner of life is to be different and this word indicates public conduct they're to be holy in all their dealings with other people uh <clears throat> With the form of the verb be here, the idea is for them to start to be holy in their conduct, which indicates that they have work to do. Uh, the verb form for be there is what's called a, you've probably heard this before, an aggressive heiress, which means you need to start doing it. You need to start. So it indicates they have work to do. They're in a cultural war. They have the unbelieving world persecuting them. And you better believe they're watching everything. These people that are supposed to be holy, they're watching everything that they do. They have the Christians under a microscope. In a cultural war. So these people need to plan ahead on how they're going to handle these things. We're not supposed to wait till trouble comes. Whoever is next, I think it's you, Delaney. Look up for us, um, Matthew 7. I think it's verse 23. I'll tell you for sure in just a second. 
24. Matthew 7, 24. Through 27. And I'll tell you when to read. Okay, remember, we're supposed to do things God's way and not the way of the world. The world is pressing in on us. Charles may cover this later on today, but it's trying to mold us into the way the world does. But we're not to be conformed to this world. Now, they are in a cultural war. They need to plan ahead on how they're going to handle things. We as Christians don't need to wait till something bad comes and then try to figure it out. Let's have uh, Romans 7.24, I mean Matthew 7.24 read for us. Twenty-four through twenty-seven. Yeah. And behold, there arose a great tempest and sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves. Hold on, Matthew seven twenty-four. Oh, sorry. Okay. Eight twenty-four. Therefore, whoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man who built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew. Now, we have storms coming in this passage. And we have Jesus dividing people into two classes here. Ones who hear His Word and builds His house upon the rock. This is a process, building your house upon the rock so that when the storms come, your house won't fall. The other class of people is... The people who hear the words and do not build their house upon the rock, but build their house upon the sand. They don't build it on the Word of God, they build it on the sand. So guess what happens when the storms come to those people? The house falls. So, it's what we're supposed to do is always be, be preparing for hard times ahead. Know what you're going to do in advance. Prepare your minds for action. And be ready, be sober-minded, be people of prayer. I have seen people where I work that I've tried to help in one way or another. I can tell those when they go through a hard time, the ones who have built their house upon the rock. They stand. They have that biblical background. They know what to do. Their faith is in Christ. And I've seen the so-called Christians just fold like a deck of cards. And so... You can probably, you've probably had experience too where you can tell those people that have built their house on the sand and those people that have built their house on the rock. That's what Peter is telling them here is you need to be building your house upon the rock, on the Word of God. Know what you're going to do when the, this unbelieving world, this public, public starts persecuting you. Okay, anything else on that? Before we move all the way to verse 17. Okay, 
before we leave that, Jay Adams makes this following comment. Jay Adams is a great biblical counselor. He's with the Lord now. He used to pastor a church down here in Simpsonville in the ARP. Um, I guess he's probably just, you might say he's the founder of euthetic counseling, which is biblical counseling. He makes this statement. Peter is calling on his hearers to be more than passive listeners to the word. They must actively think through the meaning of what they hear and determine and determine how it applies to their own situation. Action, hard mental work, and struggles are essential for maintaining and fostering hope in days of difficulty and times of trouble. Trials cannot be overcome successively by a passive attitude. And what he's teaching here is nothing new. Let's have Leviticus 19, 1 through 2 read. Now this is, this is about as Old Testament as you can get. When the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I the Lord your God am holy. Alright. <clears throat> Peter, I mean, uh, Moses has just gotten through uh, with a discourse of, on God's law. Showing them how they're supposed to act. They're not supposed to pick up the customs of the people around them. They're supposed to do what God tells them to do in His law and not mix in with the world. And he, so Peter is picking up on that in this verse. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Literally, it's what Peter says in this verse. It stands written. The Old Testament is in full force. It stands written. Which indicates it cannot change. The Old Testament stands written. It's not going to change. The requirement's not going to change at all. So God finishes his discourse with the Hebrews and he tells them to not be conformed to the culture around them, but to be conformed to these instructions I am giving you. So nothing new. Okay, so that brings us up to verse 17. Verse 17 tells us, And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. Y'all do have this part, don't you? I have to. Okay. Um, so, in your notes there, they are expected to call on their father during this time of persecution. We are under the protective hand of God. We need to realize it. So, he is a judge not only of their works, but he's also the judge of their persecutors. God will judge, judge our works. I mean, we're not saved by works, but <clears throat> the works will you have clear evidence whether we're Christians or not. But he's not only going to do that, but he's going to judge these persecutors. They are under God's control. So even during this time, they are still to attend to their calling in fear. Even though God is protecting them, they are supposed to fear God. Okay, let's see. That's verse 17. 16. 
17, yeah, verse 17. Okay, and the word for fear there is phobos, which can mean nothing but fear. It can't mean reverence, it means fear. Calling upon him in fear. They have a loving father who protects them, but they also have a father whom they are to reverently fear. Have I signed Romans 3, 18 to anyone? Yeah. Okay. There is no fear of God before their eyes. All right, if you turn back to Romans 3, that is kind of the way Paul sums up the unbelief. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And I'll tell you something, in this culture we're in right now, you have to look long and hard to find any kind of fear of God. But the Christian is to fear God. Unbelievers have no fear of God, according to Romans 3.18. So, to review, in their persecutions, they are to keep praising God, looking back to verse 3. This is good instruction for us when persecution comes upon us. We are to continue to bless or praise God. And then in verse 6, we are to rejoice. It says, in this you are to rejoice. If now for a little while if necessary you've been grieved by various trials, we are still commanded to rejoice. And then, as we've just read, keep calling on God. So that's the way we are to act when the storms come. Before the storms get here, we build our house on a rock. And then when the storms get here, we keep praising God and we rejoice in our salvation and we keep calling on God. Now, um, this next verse, we get into the idea of blood and ransom and things of that nature. I don't want to start on that now. I want to wait till next week and just cover that next week. Anybody have anything to add to what we have covered today? Now, Chase, will you close us in prayer, please?